this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. And Haney is a phenomenal Bible teacher. So it's always intimidating opening the Bible when Henny's around because you want to make sure that you're not messing this one up. And it's just so great to see just the way that he settled in. Him and Rochelle have been here for just over a year now and how you guys have grown and how this church has grown and how there's so much life and we can just sense the coming together just even in the worship, the purity of seeking Christ. And when we pick up the story here towards the end of, of Luke 24, in the middle of Luke 24, is right at the end of Luke's gospel. And the story of Christ has, on earth, probably not the whole story, but the little chapter of Jesus that happened here on earth has played out. Jesus has come born from a Virgin Mary. I've got three daughters, and one of my precious moments in in the week is those times when I, just before we go to bed and the evenings that I do happen to be at home, and we I tell them Bible stories and I explain to them the various passages from Scripture. And we were talking about the life of Jesus the other day, and we were actually talking about the birth of Jesus. And there was Mary and, and Joseph, and we used a little app on on the tablet, which has just really cool visuals, and fortunately for me, I'm glad it's in English, and my kids' English aren't so good yet. Aren't so good. It's like my English. Eh? <laughs> my kids' English isn't isn't that great yet. The neighbor's English, so the daughter, the eldest one, is is learning a little bit of English, and it's just so fun listening to her speak. But the tablet story is in English. I turn the volume all the way down, and I explain the story to them. But the visuals serve as a really nice primer. Here was. Mary and Joseph and the baby in Mary's tummy. And then the question inevitably, Mary and Joseph, but they're married. <laughs> they're not married. But how is it? You, you can't have a baby if you're not married. And I kind of was caught in this really awkward situation trying to explain this to a five-year-old that this was a really special baby because it was born to, a, and they're the only couple ever who are allowed having a baby when they're not married. And then... <laughs> They went to Bethlehem, and then the baby was born. And now they're married. No, Actually, don't even know exactly when they got married. But there's this beautiful moment of just being able to share the, around the virgin birth that Jesus was born different, sinless. And he lived his life and for 30 years. And then for three years, he brought a group of people around him in truth, the group of people decided to follow him when they saw what he was happening in his life. We don't know how many. We know multitudes. All of them called it disciples, called disciples at various stages of Scripture. So often we make the mistake of thinking the disciples were the twelve. Where the word disciples in Scripture and the Gospels refers to the multitudes. And we don't know how many it were. We know at times it was 5,000, not including women and children. So multitudes was many. And then at times, there were the 70 who were following Jesus. There were the 120 who happened to remain when Jesus ascended into heaven. There were the 12 who typically we would call the apostles. 
We lost one along the way. Then there were the three. Jesus' closest friends, his inner circle. Jesus had gone through this whole three years with these groups of people following him, living his life in public. And then the climax as he entered into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, and as it were, the whole city welcoming jubilation as Jesus was coming to redeem. And then the crucifixion, the death. And that's roundabout where we pick up the story of two men, followers of Jesus. And we start reading in, in verse 13, and I think it might be up there as well. That same day, two of Jesus, the same day of Jesus' resurrection, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. That's about 12 kilometers, somewhere around there. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. That has to be a great conversation. Two followers of Jesus who were, I don't know about you, but if I can go back into the archives of history, we were praying beforehand, and it must be the history class in the intercession room. It was hard for me to pray because there's so many distractions in that room, so many names and photos and things that evoke memories and remind us of moments that maybe we weren't part of, but we know shaped the course of how we've come here today. And if I could go through the the whole 6,000 odd years of human history, there's some phenomenal moments, things that happened, that shaped, that brought us to where we are. But I think there can't be any more phenomenal moment than the three years of Jesus' ministry. If I had to get the DVD of what really happened in any stage in history, I think that's the DVD I would get. And if I had to narrow it down, it would be these last few days in Jerusalem, just before and leading up to his crucifixion and everything that happened, such powerful, powerful moments. And these two guys are talking about everything that's just happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept him from recognizing him. So here are two guys who've been following Jesus had all their hopes pinned upon him. I don't know about you, but when I first came to Jesus, it's like Jesus could do anything. I was stupid enough to believe that nothing was impossible for Jesus. I'd put all my faith in him, even if I have to go and write an exam. And you know, they they gave us this really good mantra when we were students. They said, study as if you don't know how to pray, and then pray as if you didn't study. And that was a really good combination. And I remember one exam specifically, I'd studied as if I didn't know how to pray. And I'd studied as if I didn't know how to study because I had no clue what was happening in that subject. I was totally clueless. Totally, totally. I remember sitting in the first tutorial class. It was computer science. I'd never had computer science in my life. All my friends did that. This is how you turn on a computer course. I said, come, let me do something proper that maybe I can use somewhere later in my life. And I said, let's do computer science. And we got the book and the theory and kind of, you got the textbook. And I remember sitting in the first tutorial. Textbook open. Tutorial number one. Write a program to do something little, silly little thing. I was sitting there for 30 minutes with my computer open because I could turn it on. The program to type in was open. The screen was there. And I was looking around at everybody typing away. 
And I was looking at the book and looking at the screen. And I'm not joking, for like 30 minutes. I didn't even know what the first character was to type. And that exam, the first test, the semester test came up. And I remember we had a prayer room in the residence where I was. I remember going into the prayer room and I remember thinking, an hour of studying isn't going to change anything. Another hour of studying for the subject that I have no clue about is going to change absolutely nothing. And I went into the prayer room and I just said, God, I don't know how to do this, God. God, I want to do this, God. You know, I've been studying. The only thing that I can hope right now is that Jesus, somehow, you're going to do this. Corpus' brother, Chris, who works on staff with us in Pretoria, Tuesday morning, flies off home. His dad just had this massive heart attack. It's silly enough, stupid enough, if you'll excuse the language, to believe that Jesus can actually heal a heart that's meant to stop working. So much so that the doctors afterwards say, this is a miracle, this has to be the work of God. And I remember as a young Christian, I had that silliness inside of me, willing to put everything on Jesus. And these guys are exactly the same. And as they're walking from, they've just seen it happen in front of them. I mean, it's really I think it's really easy to believe in Jesus when you've just seen him raise the dead. When you've just seen the guy with a withered arm have the arm grow back. We're really hungry. There's like a couple of thousand of us here, and there's one boy with five loaves of bread and two fish, and Jesus feeds all of us with it. It's easy to put faith in Him. It's easy to take all of our dreams and hopes and begin to pin them on Jesus. And we do that, and we should. And they're walking, and here's Jesus, two guys walking, suddenly we three. Hey, can I walk with you guys? Sure, come on, walk alongside. We go, Emmaus, I'm heading past that way anyway. Let's walk together. And 12 kilometers is a fair distance. And all this time, He's asking them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? You guys are in some serious conversation here. What, what's up? They stopped short. Sadness written across their faces. We'll get back to it now. One of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who has been living under a rock. You've logged out of Facebook, social media, fast. Locked yourself in a room. No Twitter, no Instagram. Jesus, I don't know, Jesus, guy, are you clueless? The whole city of Jerusalem, this is the one thing we have all been taught, and you missed it. How on earth does that happen? You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about the things that have happened there the last few days. And I love our deliberate Jesus. Jesus is so deliberate when he speaks to us. He's so deliberate when he questions us. He says, you guys must have, he says, you guys are having a really intense conversation and I don't quite know what's going on. Can you explain to me? What are you talking about? What do you mean? What are, you, what are we talking about? Where have you been? You must be the only person who doesn't know about these things. Jesus, what things? What things? What is he saying? He's saying, will you explain? Can you tell me? Obviously, he knows exactly what's happened. Why is he asking what things? Will you tell me what you experienced? Will you tell me how you viewed? Would you tell me your perspective on what has happened in Jerusalem these last few days? It's not like he doesn't know. It's not like he wants the facts because he's missed out on the facts and the history. He's saying, would you guys tell me, how do you see 
what has been going on these last few days. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said, look at the wording that gets used here. We're going to get back to this. It's so important. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles. And he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests, remember they're saying this with sadness written across their faces. He was a great prophet. He was a mighty teacher. But our religious, our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. Verse 21. We had hoped. He was the Messiah who will come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. And now, we're going back to Emmaus. I don't know why you're going back to Emmaus. Maybe one of them had a father with a, a business and a, a job vacancy that they could join in and they could carry on with their lives. Maybe they had a guest house because they stay over there for a couple of hours a little bit later. There's something about life that could continue in Emmaus. And they're going back to Emmaus. Sadness written on their hearts, across their faces. Because they had hoped. I don't know about you, but in my relationship with Jesus, there were some things that I was so silly about. I was so convinced that Jesus can and is going to do these things. And guess what? I woke up one day and he was crucified and he was dead to me. And that dream never happened. And I woke up the next morning and I began to say, I had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. I had these dreams, maybe for a relationship maybe for a specific career. I had hoped. I had hoped. And something along the ways, as we follow Jesus, we have these moments that cause us to lose hope. Am I the only person who's at a moment like that? Has anyone else who's ever been in that space? Let me get back on the road to Emmaus. Because my dad's there. He's got a business. I can go help him out in the business and maybe my life. But I had, I had this dream. I had this hope that Jesus, and let's just contextualize this a little bit. We had hoped he would be the Messiah. What are they saying? They're saying as the people of Israel, we've been slaves in inverted commas. We've been oppressed by the Roman people for so long. We've been living in our own city under Roman law. We've been living in our own country, in our own space. But other people have been our rulers and our decision makers and have appointed leaders over us. And there was this Jesus guy and we thought that he was going to be the one that's going to set us free from all of these worldly things. He's going to be the one that's going to reinstate the, reinstate the nation state of Israel, our sovereignty, our own way of doing things. All of the early writers tell us that that's exactly what the believers in Jesus thought. He, and all of these miracles he was doing, they were great and they were amazing, but they were all to show us that he was the Messiah and the Messiah was going to come and set us free. You see, they're walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus says to them, why are you guys having this intense conversation, the sadness written across their faces? Why sadness? Because hope is gone. He was a great prophet. He was a great teacher. He was. Now he's dead. And we had hoped. We had hoped. We had hoped he was going to change everything. We had hoped he was going to bring freedom for us. And guess what? 
He's dead now. So my hope is gone. We had hoped in implication. We don't hope anymore. Now we're sad. Some of the greatest sadness we hit in life is when we lose the power of hope in our lives. That's one of the greatest tragedies is when you find ourselves in hopelessness. And that's what I love. One of the descriptions of God is He is the God of all hope. And here, they're walking to Emmaus, their hope shattered in a grave in Jerusalem. And then something so beautiful happens that Jesus comes and He does in our lives. We had hoped, verse 21, that He was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. We had hoped He'd come to rescue Israel and we were wrong. That's all happened three days ago. Verse 22, then some woman from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing and they'd seen angels who told him Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see and sure enough, his body was gone just as the woman had said. And I love how John accounts it. John writes as an eyewitness. He was obviously there. And I love how he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that a great name for yourself? There's this really beautiful song you may have heard, you may have sung. I don't know if you guys have ever done it in church. It's called Good, Good Father. I love, I don't know if it's the bridge or the chorus or whatever technique you'd call it, but I love that refrain which says that you are a good, good father. It is who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. You want to know who I am? I am a disciple whom Jesus loved. That's who I am. I love that song, and I want to encourage you, sing it over yourself often. He is a good, good father. It's who he is. It cannot change. Even when, he, when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Thinking earlier as we were singing about the fact that Jesus knows me, or rather we know him. That song we were singing, knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. That is so true. Said maybe I want to be a and Say maybe there is something more awesome than my knowing Jesus. That Jesus knows me. It's pretty amazing that you want to think of the top sports star in the country today, whoever it may be, or that most famous person, not in a negative sense, the person that we all would love to meet, that individual. We all know him. But what really matters is, do they know us? Doesn't that change everything? Who's the bee's knees in the Lions rugby team at the moment? Don't even know. They're playing well, but there's... No, not many superstars, Warren Whiteley or Alton Yankees or one of the cricket players. It's all great saying, yeah, we know him, I went to school with him, or I heard of him, or I had a bribe with him one stage or whatever. And if he knocks on his door, on our door, we're going to recognize him immediately. But there's something different about knowing that when I knock on his door, he's going to recognize me. Isn't that amazing that God actually knows you and he knows me? And here's his disciple whom Jesus loved. And in John the Baptist, not John the Baptist, in the Gospel of John, he writes 
about this moment when the woman came back, Mary and the other lady, Mary and Mary, and I think there were probably like 17 Marys there and the other ladies, and they all came back and they said, Jesus isn't there. And they were these angels, and they told us he's risen. And just a crazy story, and I love how John gives account of the story. He says, so Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved ran to the tomb. And the disciple whom Jesus loved got there first. If you are John and you're writing the gospel, that for all of eternity people are going to read, the one thing he's making sure is he's putting in there, Peter, I beat you. (laughs) No one is ever going to miss that John was the faster one of the two. Peter, you lost. Sorry, it's written down for eternity. Slow coach, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But this disciple whom Jesus loved, and Peter, and they'd run. They came back with this amazing report, and some of our men ran to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the woman had said. And they're confused by this. In verse 25, Jesus gives them a sort of rebuke, and he says, You foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures? Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And then the Bible school lesson of all Bible school lessons that have ever been taught. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament as we have it today, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He had 12 kilometers walking to do it in, so there was time for him. If you think of the Old Testament references to Jesus, what do we think of? We think of that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the government will be upon his shoulders. In the increase of his rule, there will be no end. There are those beautiful passages of Jesus. But what are the predominant passages of Jesus in the Old Testament? They're the passages of his suffering, passages of his death, passages of his resurrection. Not his resurrection so much, but his death, his suffering, his hurt, his pain. Isaiah 53, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our iniquities. He was, ah, suddenly it got me. How can I forget that important verse? The chastisement of, his, of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are we healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us turned to his own wicked way. But God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You see, if you were to do an Old Testament study on the Messiah, do you know what your predominant theme is going to be? Suffering and shame. And yet Jesus comes and he says, guys, I'm so thankful that you told me what your experience was, because you thought he was going to be the one who's going to come and rescue Israel, but there was just one problem. Your perspective was wrong. You thought that this Jesus is going to do something to serve your own selfish, carnal desires, and that's never who the Messiah has been about. And in this moment, for the best part of 12 kilometers, what does he come and do? He realigns their perspective. He starts in the Old Testament and he explains to them. He starts by saying, didn't you guys read that the Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to have to suffer and go through all of these persecutions? And for 12 kilometers, he explains to them 
Not 12 kilometers on a bicycle. Not 12 kilometers in a car. 12 kilometers walking. He explains to them Jesus from the Old Testament. And he comes, he takes away all of their nationalistic, prideful, preconceived ideas about who the Messiah should be. Suddenly, everything begins to make sense. Perspective comes back. It's amazing what happens in our lives when Jesus brings perspective to our hopelessness. You know, there's moments where I had hopelessness. It wasn't because Jesus didn't come through. It was because he didn't come through for me. I had my hope, my dream, my thing, and I wanted Jesus to deliver on that. And there were times and moments when Jesus says, Philip, as much as you are the disciple whom I love, that's not part of my plan. That is not part of what I've ordained for you. That's not what I had in store when, Philip, you've come and you've built your own plan about who you think Jesus should be. And all of these miracles you've done, I've done, have just helped to reinforce a little bit that I can do anything and everything, but the only problem is I haven't come to do anything and everything that you want me to do. I've come to do anything and everything that the Father wants me to do. And on this road to Emmaus, these two disciples get rewired. Their perspective gets changed. Suddenly they're not seeing Jesus anymore as the one to come to set Israel free from all of its natural oppression, but as Jesus who has come to set humankind free from all of our oppression, spiritual, physical, and otherwise. Suddenly they begin to see the Jesus of Isaiah 53. They begin to see the Jesus of the Psalms. They begin to see the suffering servant. Jesus explained to them from the scriptures things concerning himself. Amazing Bible story. I'd love to have that tape. Put that one on repeat. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on. But they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them as they sat down to eat. He took the bread and he blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? Didn't our hearts burn within us when the word was spoken to us and explained to us? And we weren't thinking about in humanistic terms. We weren't thinking about in selfish terms. But Jesus came and he gave us the word pure from his hand. So it's late at night. The sun is set. They said, Jesus, come along. So we're close to Emmaus. Jesus, don't go. You can carry on your journey tomorrow. We don't know your Jesus yet, but let's just call him Jesus because it's who he was. You can carry on your journey tomorrow. Come and sleep over at our guest house tonight. I'm going to be working here for the next six months. Maybe you can do a little bit of report of what you think should be changed in our guest house to make it more productive. And then you carry on. And We'll stay behind tomorrow. You're a great Bible teacher, by the way. I don't know how you know all of the stuff about the Old Testament and the suffering servant. And we don't know, but, but you're a pretty decent rabbi. It's late. It's dangerous. Don't carry on the road at night. They go in and they eat. They say, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within 
the hour. Right away. They've just stopped. They've just eaten. Jesus has disappeared. It's dangerous. It's cold probably outside. It's night. It's dark. We don't care. Within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. 12 kilometers, boom, here we go. (laughs) There's a purpose to pursue. Jesus is risen. He is the hope that's been restored to our hearts. This morning, I'm wanting to pray with some of us who maybe, as some of you said, while I asked just now, you're going through that right now. Your hope is on shaky ground. You like these two guys, two guys on the road to Emmaus. You had all of these amazing plans, and the only thing that you needed, you, the whole thing worked out. It was sorted. All you needed was one minor detail for Jesus to play his part, and he didn't in your plan. I've had many moments like that. Moments where I go back and I, was this Jesus even real? That salvation and all those miracles, did that that actually happen? The stuff I saw that when Jesus fed us, did he really feed all of us on that hill that day? The guy was blind, did Jesus really heal his eyes? Those moments where hopelessness sets in morning I want to pray with you because you know what I so, 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 so love about Jesus. These two guys are on the road to Emmaus. He doesn't leave them. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't just say, well, let them just carry on with their lives because they're faithless and they doubt. They've lost hope. He does what Jesus does. He comes and he walks alongside them. He listens to them. He explains to them. He opens their eyes that they may see. And suddenly, the life, the vigor, the fire, the desire, the passion is back. And they're ready to run the 12 kilometers probably. I think they did. They walked, my guess, the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus was a lot slower than from Emmaus to Jerusalem. I'm thinking that was a jog. I'm thinking, hey guys, the 12, the 11, Judas no longer with him. And Mary, they need to hear this. We've got some crazy stuff to tell them. Let's get back there. There's a kingdom of God to pursue. Some of you are on that road on the way to Emmaus. And right now this morning, Jesus wants to come alongside. And he wants to bring clarity. He wants to bring perspective. He wants to bring healing. And you know what that perspective does? It changes everything. And it restores hope. It allows us to, I promise you, those guys, when they got back, they didn't say Jesus was a great prophet and he was a great teacher. And we had hoped that he would be the Messiah to rescue Israel. I don't think those words ever went over their lips anymore. It was Jesus is risen. The first thing that the disciples told them when they got back, as you get back, the other 12 had told, or the 11 had told them, is Jesus has really risen and he's appeared to Peter. And they were like, well, guess what? (laughs) Well done, Peter, but he's appeared to us too. And by the way, we spent like 12 kilometers with him giving us a Bible school lecture. So sit down, we've got some stuff to tell you. That's the heart of Jesus, that he's always going to come to restore. He's going to come to heal. He wants to pick up that hopelessness. 
He wants to give you perspective on it. He wants to allow you to see it through His eyes. And then He wants to heal. And He wants to breathe new life in us.